Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you will give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to believe, a head to understand, and a will to obey. Give me grace that I might speak your word humbly, boldly, clearly, and truthfully. We ask that you would speak, O Lord, for your children are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last time I was up here, um, I preached from the beginning of John's Gospel. And the cosmic battle between the light of Christ and the darkness of sin. Today, uh, we're continuing in John's Gospel, and I'd like to pick it up from verse 29 in John chapter 1. Um, I'm going to read a fair bit this morning, so uh, be ready with your Bibles. Um, So John chapter 1, starting in verse 29, and we'll read through to the end of chapter 2. John 1.29 The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said unto me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, 
said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then that which is inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum He, his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. When his disciples remembered what was written, Up, uh, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need 
that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Thus far the reading of God's word. So, fairly long reading there. Uh, But if you remember, um, let's uh, come back to talk about John's Gospel in general. It's quite different uh, from the other Gospels. And it was written later. And John is so helpful, helpful to us, because he gives us the purpose of writing his Gospel. So we don't have to scramble around searching for the reason he wrote the book. In John 20, verse 31... It says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. So that's the purpose of his gospel. It's structured differently to the other gospels as well around a series of seven signs. And also, John carefully organises them and what Jesus said so that it might be persuasive, persuasive in particular to the Jewish people of the time that they would put together the signs and conclude that he truly was the Christ, the anointed one. He wants his audience to see that Christ really was the one he claimed to be, the one that they'd been looking for, the long-awaited promised deliverer. You can contrast this purpose statement with uh, the letter that John wrote, or letters. Um, In his first letter, look at 1 John 5 verse 13 and compare it to the purpose statement that we just read. In 1 John 5, verse 13, he writes, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you have already eternal life. He's writing to a different audience here. Now, if you're familiar with John's letters and his gospel, then you'll know that there are several similarities between the letters and the gospel the language, like um, the words beginning, light, life, believe, word. All of these words are repeated continually in both his letters and his gospel. Similar vocabulary, but we see here a very different purpose between John's gospel and his letters. In 1 John, his letter... He's writing to those who already believe so that you may have confidence. And he gives in 1 John a number of signs. How do you know that you are really in Christ? But John's gospel, by contrast, is that you might believe. Not to those who believe already, but that you might believe. And then by believing, you may have life in his name. Friends, Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you believe that you have life in his name? You're probably thinking, yep, that's me. Box ticked. Yes, I do. But that doesn't mean that you can just check out 
at this point. Okay, so you need to hear what John has to say because even though John was writing to that audience in particular, we'll see that John also challenges us again and again to put our trust in Jesus, to know that Jesus, this Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, just as his disciples did, as we'll see. We've also learned much from Dr. Paul and his sermons on John. John's gospel is full of treasures and we're blessed in studying it. So here we have it. The aim of the gospel, according to John, is that we would believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the divine Son of God, and that by believing we would have life, eternal life, now and forever, in his name. Who is Jesus the Christ? Do you know who he is? And can you introduce him to me and others? And what does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? Well, if you read John's Gospel, you'll certainly find out. Because the word believe occurs over 100 times in this Gospel. The passage that we read begins with John the baptizer and his testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. And the very next day, revealing that not only is Jesus the Son of God, but he's also the Lamb of God. Immediately after that, we've got the account of Jesus calling his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip and Nathaniel, come and see. They come. They see, they hear Jesus, they listen, then they leave everything and follow him. Wow. Pretty remarkable, you know, just to leave everything and just get up, follow Jesus. Now you'd think that they would have had a pretty strong conviction and belief to do that. And Nathaniel declares when he meets Jesus in the same way John did, that Jesus is the Son of God. So that we see that already Jesus' disciples believed in him. We see belief, real belief. Believing everything, following Jesus. But then after that, there are a lot of statements about their belief. Let's take a bit of a romp through John and read a few. In the middle of chapter 2, we read, after the first sign that John gives with the changing of water into wine in Canaan, we read the statement in verse 11. And his disciples believed in him. So he's a clear statement that Jesus' disciples believed in him. In chapter 6, if you turn to chapter 6, when Jesus delivers a hard saying and many of his followers walked with him no more, it says... Jesus asked the twelve a pointed question in verse 67. Do you also want to go away? And Simon Peter answers on their behalf. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's turn to chapter 11 now with the death of Lazarus. Jesus says to them in verse 14, 
verse 14 of chapter 11. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Straight after that, in Jesus' prayer to the Father immediately before he resurrects Lazarus, he says in verse 42, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus prays this in front of his disciples, as well as Martha, who just finished saying to Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming to the world. Can you see the difference here in chapter 11? Jesus is saying to his disciples that you may believe. Hang on. I thought that they already believed in him. Back in chapter 2. Let's look further. Turn to chapter 14, verse 8. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you do not know, you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Then later in the same chapter, in the portion that Dr. Paul's been preaching on for the last little while, Jesus reassures his disciples that he will send the Holy Spirit. Again, he says to them in verse 29, And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Then in chapter 16, sorry for all of the, all of the, uh, the Bible verses, but I just wanted to, to demonstrate this. In chapter 16, Jesus says to them in verse 27, For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. But immediately afterward, his disciples say in verse 30, By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Confusing. When you put all this together, it makes you think, So when, exactly when, did the disciples believe? actually believe in Jesus? Was it when they left all to follow him? Was it after seeing his first miracle? Was it in chapter 6, when Simon Peter declares on all of their behalf, you are the Christ, the son of the living God? Or was that somehow a false faith? Now, as I said earlier, in John's Gospel, the word believe occurs over a hundred times. But the thing is that it doesn't always mean the same thing. Let me illustrate. Turn with me back to chapter 2. Back to chapter 2. Here we see Jesus performing the first sign or the first miracle in Cana. Jesus turns the water into wine and that's the very best wine that they've ever tasted. Then straight after that, 
Jesus cleanses the temple. Then we read in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem, verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. And we think this is great. This is fantastic. We're on our way. Only two chapters in already. People believing. But then we read in verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, for he knew what was in man. So they were believing in him, but he didn't believe in them. Didn't trust in them. He understands that there's believing and there's believing. Not all believing is real believing. He understood that they got excited, as humans do. They see a miracle. They're falling over themselves with excitement about it. Eager to see more, find out more. Jesus cleanses the temple. They're seeing some real leadership here. People are lining up to follow Team Jesus. Joining Team Jesus. But Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that this so-called faith was fickle faith. About going along with the crowd. Getting caught up with the moment about siding with Jesus for his impressive signs. But it wasn't real, lasting faith. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Historically, when theologians talk about believing, they say faith has three elements. Knowledge, Ascent and trust. No, not ascent as in the shoes, uh, but ascent as in agreeing with. Knowledge, ascent and trust. Knowledge means content. So biblical faith has content. There are things that you understand. But it's not just that. It's also ascent. A conviction that the knowledge that you have about those certain things, that those things are true. But it's not just knowledge and assent, it's also a trust, a dependence, a reliance. That's faith. Have you heard of the story of Charles Blondin, the first person to walk across a tightrope, uh, on a tightrope across the Niagara Falls? He did it in 1859 in, in front of a crowd of 25,000 thrill-seekers. Before he performed the crossing, one report says, there were hundreds of people examining the rope and with scarcely an exception, they all declared the inability of Mr Blondin to perform the feat, the incapacity of the rope to sustain him and that he deserved to be dashed to atoms for his desperate foolhardiness. Children clung to their mother's legs. Women peeked from behind their parasols. Several onlookers fainted. Blondin confidently stepped in onto the cable and without any problem reached the Canadian side while the band played Home Sweet Home. One man exclaimed, I wouldn't look at anything like that again for a million dollars. After 20 minutes of rest, Blondin began the journey to the other side. This time, with a camera strapped to his back, along the way he got out the camera. This is an old-fashioned camera on a tripod thing 
um, set the camera up on his balancing pole and took a photo back of the other side before heading the rest of the way. A week later, Blondin appeared again, this time without his balancing pole. He then walked across backwards to Canada and returned to the US pushing a wheelbarrow on the tightrope. In his most famous exploit, he carried a stove and utensils on his back, walked to the centre of the cable, started a fire and cooked an omelette. When it was ready, he lowered the breakfast to passengers on, a deck of sight, on the deck of a sightseeing boat below him. So, after hearing all of that, I'm sure that you'd agree that this guy's ability is pretty impressive. All in all, he made the crossing 17 times. Everyone was amazed. They all knew, by the end of it, they all knew that it, he could easily walk across the falls carrying absolutely anything. Once he even carried his manager on his back. They all believed in his unique ability to do what he did. It's reported that at one point he asked a man in the crowd if he thought he could carry a person inside the wheelbarrow across his, on his rope. All excited, the man shouted, Yes! But then he asked the man if he would like to get inside the wheelbarrow. And the man immediately shouted back, No! <laughs> so, if we think of faith having the three elements of knowledge, assent and trust, the man understood that Charles Blondin had the ability, which is the knowledge bit. He also had no doubt that he could do it, which is the, ass the assent bit. But when it came to putting his trust in Blondin to get him personally across in the wheelbarrow, no, nah, he wouldn't do it. And on the day, Charles Blondin asked heaps of people, no takers, no takers, not one. It's one thing to have knowledge about Jesus, to know about him, about his birth, his life, the signs that he performed, and his death and resurrection. And you can assent, you can agree and be convicted that Jesus really is the Son of God made man, the Lord of all life who dwelt among us. But to have life in his name, eternal life, you also have to trust him. A trust that leads to devotion, devoting your life to him, devoting your all to him, praying to him, and worshipping him. Don't get me wrong. Knowledge and assent are hugely important as well. The more we know about God, the more we can worship him. Now, I'm not saying that worship has to be some sort of intellectual ritual where we all celebrate how much we all know about Jesus. It's also a deeply emotional experience but a deep understanding of the object of our worship, our Redeemer, is what makes true worship possible. So what about the people in Jerusalem in chapter 2? Did they believe or not? John writes, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus wasn't ready, ready to believe in them because theirs was a fickle faith, a superficial faith. 
But these are the people that were following Jesus around and probably saying themselves that they believe in Jesus. Chapter 6, the same sort of thing happens where it says many of his disciples walked with him no more. People that perhaps maybe they were on the way to real faith or perhaps a faith that would have proven to be a false one. But John still says at the end of chapter 2, they believed. But the thing is, the measure of a disciple isn't what you can say most loudly, but rather what you hold to most consistently. Yes, it's good and very important that you make a profession of Jesus Christ. But let's see then what it actually looks like to live out a life of faith. In a a passage that's familiar to us all in chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might, uh, through him, might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Friends, do you believe in the, in the only begotten Son of God? You see, if you truly believe it, then it will affect you from the foundation of your being. After believing, nothing, absolutely nothing will be the same. He who believes in him will not be condemned, but have everlasting life. So, when did the disciples actually believe in him? For 11 of them, apart from Judas, right from the beginning. They were the seed planted in good soil. Their belief wasn't like those people that Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to. When Jesus says that they believed in Jesus from the beginning, when John says that they believed in Jesus from the beginning, that was a true faith. But what about later? When it says they believed in him again and again. Why does it say that? John says this because he's showing what true belief is really like. Their faith is reinforced and built up as they put their faith into action. Throughout their lives, or throughout our lives, we put our trust in God again and again and again and again. We renew and strengthen our belief in Christ as we deepen our knowledge of him. We renew our faith as we trust in him again and again and seek out to live his commandments. Every Lord's Day, we gather here in Thornlands to worship Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And as we worship him, we're we're declaring our faith in him. As we sang, Alleluia, what a saviour this morning. We're professing with our mouth that Jesus is our saviour and king. As we sing it, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon 
with his blood. Alleluia, what a saviour. And in the climax of our worship, every week, we remember our saviour, the Lamb of God, and we commune with him in the Lord's Supper. Every week, as we remember our saviour, we repent of sin, we renew our covenantal bond with him, and we place our trust again in him. He offers himself to us, and we respond by partaking of him. Yes, we're saved once. We're only saved once. We're justified once. And declared a child of God only once. But that doesn't mean that it's all roses from there. If you made a graph, of a faith graph, over your life um, since you were saved, you know, it, did, it didn't sort of start at zero and then suddenly, 100%. And then one straight line from there, 100%, 100%, 100%. And it probably didn't, maybe for some of you it was, it, it is, but, you know, probably didn't go from zero and then sort of this beautiful straight line, 45 degrees, all the way up. If you're anything like me, um, then you would see a graph that's going sort of zigzags, going up and down everywhere. Because, um, you know, our faith, it waxes and wanes. It gets stronger and it declines. We are challenged. And then the Spirit lifts us up. But if you're devoted to Christ, if you're not ashamed of Jesus then you're a child of God. You have true faith. Martin, when he preached last here, um, he talked of this man who was struggling with his sin and being in complete despair because he felt as though he wasn't winning the battle. But when asked how he felt about his sin, he shouted, I hate it! I think Martin actually put more emotion into that. I hate it! But did that man believe? Yes, because he was looking to God, not himself. So the question is, do you believe in Jesus the Christ? You may say, yes, of course. Of course I believe in him. But stop for a minute and think how crazy that sounds. And how crazy the world thinks that we sound. You believe that there was this Jewish man, so born in a barn, and he's the son of God incarnate. And you believe that this Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, which was a normal name, just a normal like Mike at the time, um, that a carpenter from a little teeny town in the countryside, Another person that looks just like you do. That this man walked around on earth with a bunch of ordinary fishermen for a few years and he worked signs and miracles and then he was crucified, dying on a cross which somehow took away your sins. And a few days later, he rose from the dead. And you believe that this dead man came back to life 
and that he ate fish and he showed off his scars and he walked through walls. And one person, person poked a finger into his side. And you believe that he's coming back to earth someday. This is what you believe. Yeah. I believe that. Yep. That's what I believe. Well, that's good. Because that's what the Bible says. But the next question is what difference does that belief make to you? What difference does it make in your life? Would anyone suppose from the way you and I live our lives that the only way to make sense of you or me is our faith in Jesus, the Son of God? Can't make sense of your priorities. Can't make sense of the things that you do can't make sense of the things that you say no to. Can't make sense of the way that you're raising your kids. Can't make sense of the, what you do with your time. What you do with your money. Can't make sense of any of it. Except that Jesus came, dwelt among man, Jesus died, and Jesus rose, and Jesus is coming again. That's what believing in Jesus is all about. Many of us have said these words hundreds of times. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, where he sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. The question is very simple, but it's a question of eternal significance. Do you believe it or not? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have revealed yourself to us. We look to you alone. None of us are good enough. None of us want to stand before you, our holy, eternal maker, in our own supposed righteousness, our own filthy rags. Lord, we need a saviour. So we give you all the glory and honour and praise that you sent one for us, the Lord Jesus, your son, to die for us sinners. According to the scriptures and to be raised on the third day and to come again to judge the living and the dead, help us to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.